Welcome to episode 218 of The Recovery Show. I hope you enjoy and get as much as I did from this open talk by Charlotte I. Hi, I'm Charlotte I, a member of al I am really happy to be here. I just, last night, I just, when I walked onto the ship, I thought I'd walked into paradise. And I was having such a good time. And then the Dodgers lost and sent me into an immediate depression. (laughs) But everything is going to be better today, I know. I'm delighted that I can get up here early and get it over with. And I'm not even scared, really. I'm just thrilled, and I really feel honored. And I don't know what I'm going to say, but my higher power better kick in pretty soon. But, you know, I woke up this morning, my eyes popped open at 6 o'clock, and I said, what day is it? And then suddenly I remembered. And there are some days I still get up, and I wonder where God is or what he's doing. And that was kind of the feeling I had this morning. But my wonderful spouse got up with me, and we had breakfast, and here we are. We made it, and so it's going to be good. I'm checking my clock here. I have to talk for an hour, I guess. So anyway, if I have to talk for an hour, I'll have to go way back to the beginning, which was 1929. And for those of you who are slow at mathematics, 48 years. I came in with the crash, and I know I was supposed to be here. I just know that, because even that was a good day I, for my parents, they say. <laughs> um, but I had... I came into the world, and I lived in a beautiful world that many times I was ashamed of, but today I realized what a beautiful world it was, and I had a beautiful childhood. And I truly can go back to the scenes of my childhood and find peace and comfort. I was born on a farm in Wisconsin. And I came along at the end of seven children, four of whom died, and my parents always wanted a little girl. And so when I came into the world, I was their little princess, and they always treated me like a princess. That's why now in this day of women's lib, I can't be too sympathetic with women who are out there saying, you know, they've always been put down and they've never had the privileges that other people or the men have had and so on and so on. Because in our family it was different. In our family it was the boys who didn't get the privileges. In our family it was the boys who worked. I did nothing that I didn't want to do. For the first 16 years of my life I did nothing that I didn't want to do. It was from the very beginning my parents had the idea that their daughter would get educated. Now, I at a very early age, I always want, I had dreams, I had two dreams. One was to become a city lady, and the other was to become a nurse. And I can remember sitting up on the hill under the apple tree, and I still love that scene, and looking out over the rolling hills and dream about what I would become. I had no discipline in my life from my parents. By discipline, I mean they never spanked me. Uh, 
when I asked for something, I got it. Fortunately, I was out in the country and there weren't too many things to ask for. I suppose if you summed up my childhood in one or two words, you would say I was a spoiled brat. But I have to say something in my behalf. I was a nice spoiled brat. Um, I, when I remember when I was in school, I was kind of the, what I uh, uh, like to see in students, the kind who sit there with their mouth shut and never do anything wrong and just, uh, when it came to anything as far as uh, reading and writing and arithmetic, I was always very good at that. So I did have my good points, but had I been brought up in the city, I don't know what would have happened to me because I could do no wrong. And this is the way, these are the things you see that um, I know about me now, but I did not know about me 20 years ago. So when I'm telling you how I was as a child, I guess I knew I was spoiled um, because I always had, um, um, what am I looking for, conflicting feelings. My parents treated me like I was a little princess, and I always thought I was a princess. I thought I was just better than anybody else, a little bit smarter, absolutely beautiful. It took me many years to wonder why everybody didn't get up and bow when I entered a room. Um, and at the same time, I felt ugly, and I was ashamed of the fact that I lived on a farm and that, uh, and we lived on one of the poorer farms. We didn't live on one of those big farms. Uh, but I did try to please my parents. And 13, or when I was 13 and off to school, kids used to call me a country hick. And I thank God today that I did not in those days, uh, respond the way I might if somebody called me that today with a hit in the face or something like that. But instead, I just kept that all inside of me and I tried to do things better, to be better than they were. And I, I did not, I'm sure I was, well, I know I was filled with hostility, but it did not come out in any of the negative ways. It always came out in good ways. From the time I was that age also, I had very little parental supervision. So you see, there has always been a higher power taking care of me because I am a very stubborn, self-willed individual. And had there not been a higher power taking care of me, as I say, I don't know where I would have ended up because at that age I had to go to stay in the city in order to go to school. And my parents really struggled and put out their all for their little girl. And they taught me many good things. Then I got to the marvelous age of 17, where I knew all, and I thought I had everything right in the palm of my hand. And the things that my parents taught me, the basic teachings, we're still there, but I kind of let them fall by the wayside. And it was at that time that the belief that I had in a God, as my parents had taught me, I dropped by the wayside. I have never 
I have never really denied the existence of God, but I did get to where I didn't need him. I could manage my life beautifully all by myself. And as I look back on those times today, I am extremely grateful that the things that happened to me happened. They had to happen just like they happened so that I could be here today on the Queen Mary and tell you about it. It was at that time, to, and another thing to show you a little bit about my personality, the reason this is fresh in my mind, is because all of our daughters were home a short time ago, and when they come home, we sit around like a bunch of idiots until all hours of the morning. I haven't recuperated yet. And they just love to hear about stories about my childhood. Uh, I, it, my husband likes to hear about stories about my childhood, too, particularly when he can't sleep. And he'll always say, Charlotte, tell me about when you were a little girl. And he's asleep in no time. <laughs> but anyway, we were sitting around talking, and I look at my children today and the relationships they have with other people, and particularly people of the opposite sex. And I remember how when I was a teenager, I had a steady boyfriend in Rochester, I had a steady one in Eau Claire, and I had a steady one in Black River Falls. And, to, and I would tell all of them that they were my steady one, that I loved them deeply. I used to be, it used to delight me to drop them like hot potatoes. And it, it was, I guess maybe that is why, when I met the man I'm married to today, whose name is Clancy, that I really was, um, from the very beginning, I was intrigued by him. Because he has always been unpredictable. <laughs> and I have learned that that is, uh, you know, a part of this um, disease that some people have. But he really, from the very beginning, I just love that quality in him because I never quite knew what he was going to do next. And I found him fascinating. We met in school, and there he was, my city feller. And I saw him before he ever knew I existed. He was playing a piano out of tune up on the stage at school. And I really, I thought he was the most charming, handsome person I've ever seen. And sometimes my kids say to me today, uh, Mother, why didn't you pick a better person to be our father? Because you see, all of them have to wear glasses, too. <laughs> and they have a striking Norwegian nose, and they have gotten all those qualities. And they always say, Mom, couldn't you have done better than that? But no, I always tell them, I know I couldn't have done better than that, because I really thought, think all of his, I, from the very beginning, I liked that. I liked his looks, and I liked him. We got married at a relatively young age in comparison to uh, what I would like my children to get married at. Um, I have suggested that they all wait until they're about 40 or 45. No, that's not true. None of them have um, waited that long. You see, I'm only 25 myself. That's the way I feel today. I feel real good this morning. And I don't even know that I'm making too much sense. I'm just trying to tell you kind of what I used to be like. Um, 
Anyway, way back in 1948, we got married. And that was the start of a brand new life for me. And it was also a um, time when I went through many, 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 many feelings and changes in my personality. Never on the outside, just on the inside. I have always been the type of person that when you looked at my outside, I always looked good. Because somewhere way back many, many years ago, somebody said, if you just smile, you know, everybody will like you. And so that was kind of the way I uh, tried to live my life. Just keep smiling and everybody will like you. And so nobody knew what was being piled up inside in those years, and I didn't know myself until I got to this program. The early years, now, up until that point, as I say, my life was very uncomplicated, and it was just kind of good. And then we started our married life, and I was, in the beginning, I was extremely happy. I thought I had everything in the world that I needed. And looking back, and as I, um, you know, after I got to where uh, I had to look back, namely when I got to the fourth step, for those of you who are on the program and know what the fourth step is, and I started looking back, I realized that from the beginning there was trouble in our marriage. And yet I can honestly say that when I think about the past years, they were happy years. I do not think of drinking ever in our house anymore. I have to really think about it, and that is why it's good to speak at meetings, is so I can be reminded and so that I can be grateful. Drugs in particular have always set me into a state of panic. I have always been afraid of drugs. I thought that uh, anybody who smoked marijuana, who did anything like that, I thought they were hopeless cases. There was never a question of booze around me in my life. I mean, never a situation where anybody drank. I thought that drinking was morally wrong. I won't say I haven't had a few drinks in my time. I'm bragging now for some of you who may be listening. but. I'm saying I didn't have any during my teenage years, because when I was a teenager, I thought anyone who drank or smoked was bad. Then when I got to college, I thought that anyone who drank or smoked was sophisticated. It was funny how my thinking changed in just a few short years. But still, I was totally and completely ignorant as far as to uh, why people drank or how much they drank or anything like that. And during our courtship, and we had a long courtship, I, there was never a time when Clancy ever got drunk in front of me. The only time I remember that he uh, drank anything was one time when he went to a stag party and uh, for someone who was getting married. And then we girls decided to crash it, and the fellows were drinking. But there was no evidence of alcohol or anything like it being a problem in those early days. And I want you to know that I lived through the years living with a practicing alcoholic in total ignorance of what I was living with or in. 
or without any knowledge of the program of AA or Al-Anon. And I am so grateful today I'm here, because when I look back, I don't know how any of us survived, really. You know, that's a lot of ignorance to have. Um, the first time that I came home and found a bottle of 100% proof on the coffee table, I was absolutely shocked. It was when I was working nights. And uh, I came home in the morning, and here was this bottle of 100% proof. Now, Clancy told me that his friends had been over the night before, and they had left it there. And I really believed it. But the reason I'm telling that is because to tell you that from the very beginning, booze was there in our lives, and yet I really didn't know it was there. Um, Clancy drank daily even in those days. But he would always come home and say, I had two beers with the boys. And I believe that. We were always kind of poor in those days. Um, and, but that was never a problem because um, he played the piano very well and he could always manage to get what he needed. And I closed my eyes and my ears many times. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I did not realize inside of me that I was married to an alcoholic until about 1963 or 1964. That is how long it took for me to realize I was married to an alcoholic. And the reason was, I guess, I just closed everything out of my ears and my eyes and I saw what I wanted to see and I heard what I wanted to hear. One thing that was my salvation, the salvation of myself and my sanity, was at a very early age, after we started down our career of marriage, I came to a belief in a power greater than myself. Twenty-seven years ago now, and I thank, I'm grateful every day for that, because that was really what kept me, when I say sane, I mean sane to the point where I have always functioned in the outside world, and I have always been able to take care of myself. And it wasn't me taking care of myself, but the other people that looked like me, and and I, I've looked good to them. But 27 years ago, I hit what I call my bottom. We had a little son who died. And after he died, I could not sleep. I could not eat. I would hear him crying. I'd go running in there, and he wasn't there. And I really was at the lowest point I have ever been in. And I said some very simple words, and the words came back from my childhood. And the words were, oh God, please help me. And from that day to this, I have never been without a night's sleep, and I have never been to where I couldn't eat. I was real thin back in those days. I went way down below 100 pounds. I'd give anything to go down to 100 pounds now. I've had the opposite problem ever since. But from that day on, I have had 
something that I know I can rely on. And I really have to give credit to that higher power for taking me through those ten years, next ten years. Now, ten years is not a long time to live with a practicing alcoholic. A lot of people do it a lot longer and a lot better than I uh, did. But if you would have asked me back in 1958 how long I'd lived with a practicing alcoholic, I'd have said 195 years. And it was really only 10. <clears throat> After our son died, my higher power, as he's always been good to me, he um, allowed me to have the privilege of going away with my aunt to the Mayo Clinic to have surgery. And you see, it was that trip that took my mind off myself and off the grief I felt at that time. And that's one of the secrets of living. If we can get outside of ourselves and think of somebody else, we don't have time to um, be as sad as we, or as miserable as we could be. I also, after my son's death, I carried a lot of guilt over that because I felt like, in a way, I had been negligent in some way or he wouldn't have died. Now, I did not know at the same time that Clancy was carrying guilt over the same thing, that he was carrying the same guilt that I was carrying. He thought that if he had been uh, less negligent, that our son wouldn't have died. So you see, here are these two people living together going along life's road, both having the same feelings and not being able to tell one another that they had the same feelings. The next ten years had many um, happy times. No, they didn't have many happy times at all. I'll take that all back. They had many, it seemed like, happy times when they were happening because um, even two weeks of happiness then was so such a great... Um, I thought it was such a great thing. I remember that when we got to El Paso, Texas, and my husband stayed sober for two weeks, and I thought I was living in heaven for two weeks. But they, those ten years were not really happy times uh, when we were going through them. And yet I never realized, never had the faintest inkling of what the problem was. Inside of me... I thought if I could do more, if I were a better person, if I were more attractive and more sophisticated, my husband wouldn't have to go out and drink. And if I could be more of a helpmate, and then each year God would send one of his little blessings in the form of a baby. And even at that, I would have to feel guilty because I thought here I am putting more responsibility on this poor human being who, uh, you know, he's got too much responsibility on him now, and he can't, he can't stand to live in the world. But never once was it because he drank. I thought it was something I was doing. And I used to put on a very good show for the uh, people around me, our neighbors and so on. And for this I am grateful, and I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. I did not go around downgrading Clancy, and telling everybody how he was getting drunk and so on and on and on. Now, that sounds very noble, doesn't it? 
I'm glad I didn't do that because I had less amends to make in the end. But the reason I didn't do that was not because I was such a wonderful person. The reason I didn't go around telling people what was happening in our home is because I didn't want anybody to know that I was dumb enough to marry that kind of a person. I guess we call it pride, the wrong kind of pride. Uh, so you see, the things that look good were really not so good on the inside. I had no idea in those days that they weren't good. I just went along. And as I, say, as I said, my higher power has taken good care of me. Even when I didn't know he was taking care of me, he's taken care of me. We went to, my life has always been exciting. It has always been exciting. It is exciting today, and it was exciting then. And it, sometimes it wasn't exciting the way I wanted it to be exciting, but it was exciting and kept me busy. I have never had to sit in a chair and say, boy, I am bored, what will I do today? And that's something to be grateful for in itself. And, we, and I've seen a lot of places with clients um, We've covered Wisconsin, <laughs> and we just about, well, it was, it was, it, when I think of what I did, that's what's great. You see, he would, when he got arrested and things like that, he would tell me that it was because the police were jealous of him, and they, <laughs> and they were picking on him, and you know what? I believed him. <laughs> And I was delighted to get out of Wisconsin so the police would quit picking on him. <laughs> uh, the times that we spent with doctors was, were also very interesting. You see, doctors had me con did not ever tell me my husband had a drinking problem. They had me convinced that my uh, husband was, I guess, insane, you'd call it, but not put together right. And it wasn't his fault. In fact, in Beloit, Wisconsin, we had the perfect setup for um, complete and total destruction. Here we have this person who nursing was her thing. I love to take care of people. An alcoholic loves to be taken care of. So we had this perfect combination going for us. Boy, if we'd have had money, we could have been dead a long time ago. <laughs> and then we had the doctors saying, it's not Clancy's fault. It's, you know, his father did thus and so many years ago. Or this happened or that happened. And I remember one time the psychiatrist wanted to see me. And... Uh, we sat there for, I don't know, half an hour or an hour talking, and he would ask me questions, and I would answer them, and he would say, is it fate or is it destiny? And to this day, that baffles me. I've never figured it out. But they really, the doctors really had me, um, uh, really had me confused. And now, I guess one of my problems is that I am leery of all doctors. And when, since we've come on the program and since I know what our problems are, I really, I hesitate to go to any doctor. And in those days, I used to think what the doctor said was gospel truth. I hope there are no doctors in the audience. 
So we had our little ups and downs in Wisconsin. And then we moved on to Texas. Now, I better get to the program pretty soon or my time's going to run out. And I'm still in Wisconsin. And when I got to El Paso, I thought I'd landed in paradise. I really did. It was in the fall of the year, and you could take off your clothes and go out in the backyard and lie in the sun. And my husband did not have a drink for two weeks. And I'll never forget it because it wasn't until Tom O'Leary came to town that he started drinking. And you see, then for years I hated Tom O'Leary for leading my husband astray. So during those years, it was always it was either myself I blamed, the people around me that I blamed for what happened to Clancy, always somebody else, and never any idea of what the real problem was. And El Paso was a nice town. I, in fact, it's a town I'd like to go to to retire to. I just loved it there. But the, um, um, and it was there that my husband, I guess, hit one of his bad spots. Oh, I want to tell you about some of my other feelings during those years when I was sitting waiting for him to come home. And I'd hear a siren and I'd think, oh, I hope that's not Clancy. I hope he didn't get killed. And then my next thought would be, Oh, I hope he did. <laughs> and that's really the way it was. Always conflicting emotions. Always concerned with what was happening to him. And always wishing that, oh, God, some way he'd get out of my life. And he did every once in a while. But he always came back. And that's why today when people, you know, say, oh, but if he leaves, I'm so afraid he'll leave me. Or if, if I leave him, I may never see him again and stuff like that. And I always say, especially if they're still drinking, bad penny always returns. And I really, I, I really feel that because he always came back. It was in El Paso that the greatest period of hospitalization began. And Still, and, and I want to tell you another thing. We've had AA in our lives since 1950. I have known about the letters AA. Um, when we were living in Beloit, Wisconsin, we used to have AA meetings at our house. The meetings consisted of this gang getting together, and they would call the meeting to order, and they would say, is there any uh, old business? No old business. And they would say, is there any new business? No new business. And, they would, and then they'd get out a deck of cards and play cards, poker. And then during the day, they'd all be out doing their thing. And the next week, it would be the same. So it wasn't as though I hadn't heard of AA. I had heard about it. But I also heard that people went to AA and stayed sober. And my husband went to AA and continued to drink. So therefore, I concluded in my head, he wasn't an alcoholic. And that meant the doctors had to be right, and, you know, every alcohol was not his problem. So I have known about AA for a long time. I have not known about the benefits of AA and Al-Anon that long, however. So by the time I could not stand... Um, to send him back to the hospital. 
And so I um, got out of the situation, and I did it by getting out and not letting him know where we were for a whole year. And to this day, he still doesn't know where we were, and I'm, I don't think I'll ever tell him. Um, and that's not all he has me even asked. So anyway, it was also back, then I was alone, and I, I was alone with the children. And I worked my Al-Anon program then, but I didn't know I was working my Al-Anon program. I call that period when I left Clancy, release. And it was. It was the best type of release I know. Just completely, totally, uh, emotionally and physically, you release somebody. But there I was with the children. It was at that time that I became aware of a very grave uh, weakness in me, and that was my terrible, terrible temper. Because, you see... I never had to, um, well, in fact, until I married Clancy, I always had things my own way. No one ever provoked me. Then when I was married to him, I had an excuse for getting angry. But all of a sudden, I was with these little children, and I was still getting angry, and there were no excuses. But the thing that really made me decide to do, and I call that part of my life and that part of my temper, I call it the white rage because I would get so angry that I didn't see red, I saw white. And so for those years when I was not with him, I was working on trying to conquer that temper. Now I have it conquered today to the point where I don't see white anymore, I just see red now. But um, I, was, I worked on that because I was really afraid of what I might do to the kids. I mean, they were little and I would Really, I could become outrageously angry. So we went through the next five years separate, clients and myself. And my life went well. It really did, um, in a lot of ways. And by that, I mean it went well in the sense that my higher power always gave me opportunities, always put opportunities in front of me, and always put nice people around me. And I, outside, on the outside, I was very successful. And I was able to keep the four together. And we were even able to get a little house in Dallas. And not buy it, rent it. But that was better than when, where we were, had been living by ourselves at first. And uh, I was very comfortable and secure, as secure as a bug in a rug. And if you would have asked me if anything was wrong with Charlotte, I would have said absolutely not. I made a bad marriage, but everything with me is just great. And then um, things happened. Oh, Clancy and I, after uh, he had, we had been separated a while, <clears throat> you see, when we were separated, he didn't know where I was, but he knew where I worked. So, and I always had hope that someday we would get together. And yet, at the same time, I hoped we would never get together, and I absolutely hated him, I thought. Um, but when he would, then he came back after, I don't know, after he had been on the program of AA for about 15 months, and we talked from the beginning. Every year we would talk about getting back together, and he would tell me he had been sober on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I did not believe him. I did not believe he'd been sober, because I'd heard that before, that he had, you know, he was going to quit drinking a lot of times, or do things, or change. 
So I didn't, I absolutely didn't believe him. And then it wasn't, my higher power has always had to deal with me in very harsh ways to get me to open up my eyes and take any action because I was comfortable in Dallas. And, and I had many hectic times too. I mean, uh, our children are just like their father and their mother. They have strong, stubborn wills. We're a beautiful family when all seven of us get together. You know, everybody wanting their own way and everybody having it a different way. And gee, we just can go through all kinds of um, commotion. But they kept life, the kids kept life interesting for me in those days, like the time where I came home and found a big horse in the patio. And then I found out that our daughter, who was nine years old, had purchased it and had talked the man into selling it to her for five dollars down, which is all the money she'd been saving over a period of years, and five dollars a month. And that can get quite, you know, uh, disturbing when you come home tired from work and you wonder what you're going to do with this great big horse. But we had a lot of interesting things like that. Our oldest daughter, all of our daughters have been interesting, but our oldest daughter has had more the spirit and imagination of her father. And she never let me stay, uh, you know, bored or anything for too long. She always thought of little things to do. But other than that, we were happy in Dallas. And then, in 1963, my higher power decided that Clancy and I would never get back together if he didn't take some action, because we talked about it. Clancy and I are big for talk, but we don't take action until somebody gives us a kick in the feet. So he decided to move the office from Dallas to uh, Kansas City. And that was when we decided that we better, you know, talk more seriously about getting back together. And I had a chance of moving to Kansas City or to coming to California. Now, California is a city I've never wanted to live in. I've never dreamed of living in. And here I am. Oh, it's California. It's not a city. It's a state. My God, Charlotte. Um, but at Los Angeles, we moved to Los Angeles. And that's a city I've never dreamed of living in, never wanted to live in, didn't even want to come to California. And so we got together. And then when I came out here, I came with, inside of me, I said, I will do everything I can to keep our marriage, to, to build our marriage. We couldn't keep it together, it was already apart, but to put it together, to build but I came out here totally right, just absolutely uh, scared to death inside. I can't tell you the fear I had. Clancy had the same kind of fear. But neither of us could tell the other how we really felt. Um, Clancy had been on the program for five years at that time. And he took me to meetings. Now he said he'd been sober five years. I did not come to California thinking that he had been sober for five years or off booze for five years or even knowing then what the problem was. I really didn't. I came here absolutely um, ignorant to the disease of alcoholism. And he would take me to meetings and from the very beginning I've loved the AAs. And then we'd go to those dances not too far from our house. And I used to think that was really living. And I always, I came, I came to Al-Anon 
because I really wanted to come to AA. I really did. But you see, I've never been able to qualify for AA because I don't drink. But I can qualify in other ways. I can tell you about self-pity, and I can tell you about resentments, and I can tell you about inadequacy, and I can tell you about having no self-esteem. I had all the things that the alcoholics had. Gee, I sound like I'm talking to the alcoholics now, don't I? Uh, but I had none. I did not have the problem with booze. But that, I would go to these meetings and people would say to me, I kind of wonder, you know, how do you get into this group? And they would say, have you been to Alana? It wasn't until many years later that I realized why people were asking me, have you been to Alana? <laughs> because you see, at that time in my life, I was still perfect in my thoughts. So finally, I thought I'd better go to Alanon to see if I could please these people. And I went to Alanon. And at my first Al-Anon meeting, I heard some magic words. And that's all I heard. And that's all I heard for about a year. I used to hate Al-Anon with a passion. But the words that this woman got up and she said, when her husband was drinking, she nearly divorced him. And when he sobered up, he nearly divorced her. Because she would go to meetings with him and she would, when the speaker would say something that would remind her of her husband, she'd give him the elbow. And then all the way home, she would tell him how the AA meetings should be run. Now, you see, even with my limited knowledge of AA and Al-Anon, those words stayed with me. And I waited a whole ten years before I started telling Clancy how to run AA. But in the beginning, I really did not complain too much about his going to those meetings. When he would come home from those meetings, and I would, as he came into the bedroom and I pretended to be asleep, I would take a big deep breath, really expecting to smell booze, never believing he was, he really didn't have my trust in him that he was going to stay sober. But you see, he didn't know this, because I really didn't go around wringing my hands and wondering if he's going to get drunk either, because to tell you the truth, when I first came here, I had such a hard time just keeping Charlotte together that I couldn't be too concerned about whether he was going to drink or not. But those are the things that he didn't realize, that I really didn't think he had been sober all those years. And when I, I heard people um, in AA talk about being alcoholics, I did not think Clancy was an alcoholic. Because as I say, I kept my eyes and ears and everything closed for so many years. You know, our children say to me today, they say, Mother, you're becoming so liberal. Or Mother, you're, you just seems like you're so understanding now. And yeah, I am more understanding now. I was never, I couldn't understand any of that stuff before. Of course, they didn't know about a lot of those things. I mean, nobody really knows how closed mind I was until I, I, until I found out myself how closed mind I was. And now I tell the rest of you. And, uh, 
Then I would go back to Al-Anon. I would only go back to Al-Anon because it seemed the popular thing to do back in those days. My first sponsor, bless her heart, she would tell me to do things. One thing I've always done that I will give myself another pat in the back for, gee, I'm going to have my back worn out and my arm broken, but I have always listened. From the beginning, when they told me things in Al-Anon, I listened. I did not like Al-Anon. I hated all of you Al-Anons. I love the AAs. I've always loved the AAs and hated the Al-Anons. I wonder why that is. I don't know. I'm not even going to try to figure it out. But, and now I'm getting, so I'm kind of, you know, reversing all of my thinking. <laughs> I wonder why that is. <laughs> but this sponsor of mine, although I didn't, care much for her and I knew I was superior to her <laughs> I would listen when she told me to do things and I would do them uh, and incidentally the, the person who was my first sponsor ended up being my baby after years not too many years but it's been quite a few years when I come to think about it well so be it what's the year here and now um, one thing, too, that my husband said very early in our getting back together was that you never say no to an AA or Al-Anon request. And that has always, uh, I really believe that. Um, and I just never have said no to Al-Anon if I could help it. Um, and he never says no to AA. But that is just kind of an unwritten law in our house, that you never say no to AA or Al-Anon. So I guess from the beginning, in that sense, that was one reason I kept going back to Al-Anon. But I really did hate, hate Al-Anon. And it came to the steps, and I could, I could uh, imagine somebody being an alcoholic and their life being unmanageable. I could not understand that step applying to me because I looked at myself and I said my life has been manageable haven't I done well haven't I taken care of our children isn't everything together I did not tell people that when I got into a crowded room and this isn't a very crowded room but it only took three people to be a crowd for me in those days I didn't say to let anybody know that that absolutely terrified me. My God, my husband would bring home AAs for coffee and he would expect me to go carry two cups or expect me to serve coffee. Always felt kind of embarrassed going in with one cup at a time. But I was so petrified of people in those days that to carry two cups, you know, I would have it all filled by the time I got in there. Alcoholics think they get the shakes. They don't know about us Al-Anons. Um, the second step was extremely difficult for me. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now the only way you can be restored to sanity is if you're insane. Since I was never insane, how could I possibly be restored to sanity? Third step was easy for me. And I shouldn't say it was easy for me either. Uh, it was easy for me in the sense that I had a belief in a higher power. But you see, my relationship in those days with my higher power was, God, this is what I would like. Please give it to me. 
Sometimes I would say thank you. But I did have a belief in a higher power. So I could say, well, okay, I'm going to turn my life and my will over now to God. And then I would go about my business and do, do things the way I wanted to do them anyway. The fourth step, oh my gosh, I thought, gee, that's great for the alcoholics. They've all done a lot of bad things. But since I've never done anything bad, I don't have to take a fourth step. And I'm not going to say how long it took me to take my fourth step because I, some of my babies are here this morning that may have not heard it, and most of them know I was slow at it. But um, it took me a long time to take the fourth step because I knew it didn't apply to me. And you know, when I did take, I, I take the first step very often in my life, and I take it every I take it often because every time I start getting um, too cocky and too far away from the program, all of a sudden my life starts getting unmanageable. So sometimes I have to take the first step over and over and over again. The second step, my idea of insanity was somebody who was in a padded cell or somebody who had been in a state hospital taking shock treatment. But I did, could not say that I had ever been insane. So I kind of covered that up a little bit, and I did get to where I could say, but you did have a sickness of the soul. I have to, have to, be, a very, um, I have to be very careful that I don't consider myself too sick. Because when I consider myself too sick, I go to bed. And when I go to bed, then I can't do the things I'm supposed to do. Um, but then I did take, I broke down and I took the fourth step. Now one reason I broke down and took the fourth step is I got to the point where I was, I took it when I was completely and totally miserable. And I, sometimes I would be miserable and I would know why I was miserable and I would start writing from that point. There were other times I was just miserable. It felt like the sky was falling upon me and I didn't know why. And so I would just sit down and I would say, please God, dear guide my pen, and I would start writing. And it took me a long time. I did it um, and, uh, completely. And then I said, but I will not take the fifth. I'm not about to tell anybody that kind of garbage. So I tore up my fourth. And guess what happened? I still continued to feel miserable. So then I got off my dust and I took the fourth again and I took it thoroughly. Now when I took the fifth step, that is what they mean by the little Al-Anon butterfly. Oh my gosh, I'll never forget that marvelous day. I was driving my car, after I'd taken it, I was driving my car down to El Segundo to work. And I wouldn't have needed a car. I could have just floated down there. I was so happy. And that is really when I could let go of some of the resentment and the guilt and the pride. Pride has always been my most, my deepest enemy. But that is when I could start letting them go and look at them and realize what they were. See, I was never aware of any of that before. I wasn't aware of the fact that I uh, had a lot of self-pity and a lot of pride. And the guilt, the guilt was overpowering. I, I took guilt for everything. I, and, and I also 
I know Clancy had guilt, but besides having my guilt, I had all his guilt, too, because I took it for my, you know, nobody made me take it except me with something that I took freely. But it was the fourth and fifth step that got rid of that for me. Now, I'd like to say that I came into Al-Anon and everything turned out rosy. And it hasn't. I have the same defects that I had before, to tell you the truth. I can still get angry. I can still feel self-pity. I can still feel resentful. But what Al-Anon has done for me is to, it's made me aware of what those feelings are. Now the reason I can still feel guilty and full of self-pity and resentful is because, you see, I was the kind of person that planned everybody's life. I know what's best for my husband. I planned all of our children's lives when they were little bitty infants. I had their whole life planned for them, what they would do. And I'm happy to report that none of them do it. Not my husband, not my children. They are all their own people. And I really am delighted over that. I really am. But I want you to know that it makes for self-pity sometimes. It makes for a lot of resentment sometimes. But Al-Anon has taught me what that is. And so I can say to myself, okay, Charlotte, feel sorry for yourself or get off the pity pot. And I have found a beautiful tool for getting off the pity pot. And that is to sit down with a paper and a pencil and write down in black and white all of the things I've got to be grateful for. And there is no way humanly possible to stay in that place of self-pity and resentment and misery when you look at all you've got to be grateful for. And there's so much. There's so much. We've all got so much to be grateful for. It is just amazing. So that's the little gratitude list that I've stolen from Al-Anon. And I pass on to you to tell you it really works, but you have to sit down and you have to write it down. You can't just say, thank you, God, that I can see, and thank you that I can hear, and thank you that my children are healthy, and thank you that my husband is sober. You have to write it down in black and white. I do. Maybe it works differently for different people. My clock is upside down. I may still be talking at noon. I haven't even started telling you about our kids yet. Um, so, and of course, the sixth and seventh are easy steps because we have to depend upon our higher power there. You know, all we have to do is take the action. And the inventory brings out what those defects are because I really, to tell you the honest to God's truth, I did not know I was just consumed with resentments and self-pity and feelings of inadequacy and all that stuff. I didn't know that about myself until I took that fourth and fifth step. I did know I was afraid, but you see, people can dodge fear. You can, you can live completely, totally filled with fear and never let the outside world know. So I would have never had to have done anything about the fear because all you have to do is get in a crowd and keep your mouth shut. And people get two uh, different impressions. Some think you're a snob 
People used to think I was a snob. I've never been a snob. I was just so fearful of people that that is why I couldn't be friendly and I couldn't say hello and things like that. So if you just keep your mouth shut, people either think you're a snob or that you're stupid and don't know anything. But you can live with that. You can get away with fear. But it's that other stuff, you know, the self-pity and the resentment that'll really get you. Because who likes to sit around crying all the time? Now, I still like to cry. I cry when I'm sad and I cry when I'm happy. And I think it is, I do not think crying is, means that we're not working our program or it's a weakness. I think crying is a beautiful way of releasing tension and so on. And these years and these weeks and these months have all been exciting ones for me. And I could go on and on and on. I could just tell you about some of the things that have happened in the past uh, three weeks that have been exciting. Um, well, I'll tell you, I'll just touch on it briefly. Our daughter got married. And at the reception, the other one who's going to be the grandmother of the grandchildren that she's going to have. Now, mind you, I never project. Um, she had an alcoholic convulsion as a climax to the reception. Now, really, it, uh, for people like me, one of my reactions could be, you see, this is how my mind works, could be, well, I definitely will be the superior grandmother. <laughs> because... Um, I don't have that problem. But thank God, because of this program, I don't have to worry about being the superior grandmother. I can really honestly say that I have a, a lot of compassion for Peggy. And I can honestly say that I hope that just being around the people that she has so far met will bring her the beautiful program of AA, which has given us Al-Anon's all the good things we have. And I really feel that from the bottom of my heart. I will be so tickled that Peggy can just grasp the program. And then my mind says, think of how great those little grandkids will be. A grandpa and a grandmother on the AA program and we'll get all the rest of the family and Al-Anon and those little kids will be just mothered with programs. But mind you, I never project. <laughs> My daughter called the other day to say that her husband has received the appointment that he wanted so much in France. But I said, oh, isn't that wonderful? And inside myself I thought, Oh, Mary going way off to France, whatever will I do? And my little granddaughter, she probably won't be home for Christmas a year from now. See, this is the way my mind goes. And this is why each day I am in Al-Anon, I realize that it is a program that I have to work every single day. Each day I realize how little I really know. And my program is very simple. I get up in the morning and I say, here I am, God. Show me what you want me to do today. And during the day, I talk to God a lot and I say, well, are you sure you want me to do that? Because I don't think I want to do it. And then at night, I get down on my knobby little knees and I say, thank you. 
And so it's simple, really. But I am so grateful for it, and I know that each day I need it more and more and more. And I am grateful to all of the people, the people in Alcoholics Anonymous and the people in AA. And I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful convention, because I'm going to have one. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back.